29. If you're there, good. We'll read here in just a minute. But as we continue our study through um, Genesis and read about, really, in, this, in these next several chapters about the things that Jacob did and about the troubles that he went through, there are some important things for us to notice. And in noticing these important things, there are some important lessons for us to learn. Now, I'm not this way by nature. The older I get, thank God, I, I become more like this where I can learn lessons from other people's lives and other people's mistakes. I was one of those knuckleheads that, you know, you, you could tell me, and, and I would be like, yeah, but it just didn't, I had to go do it myself, right? I had to find out for myself. And that's not always the best way of learning when it comes to learning what is not the right thing to do, right? And, and for Jacob, we can learn from his lessons. We don't have to go through some of these things that he went through. And, and, and that's the goal for us as parents, right? We don't want our kids to go through some of the same things that we went through. We would like them to learn from our experiences rather than experiencing some things on their own. And God's the same way for us, with us as his kids. And it's an amazing fact of the Bible that the Bible is, is like a book of anti-heroes. I mean, it's, it's men and women in, in all of their glory, so to speak, with all their faults, with all their failures. And, and they're on display. And you go, wow, it would be really cool to be one of the people talked about in the Bible. But if you begin to think about all your faults and all your failures, put down in pages for all, you know, for all of the, the history of mankind, for everybody to read about, you know, then you would like, well, you'd be like, I'm sure glad I'm not one of these characters that God chose to be in the Bible. And, and Jacob, for sure, is one of them, but we can learn lessons from it. And in the next chapter... We're going to see as we continue on, we're going to see that, that Jacob will continue his journey, uh, and, and he will finish it, the journey of, 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 of traveling to his mother's homeland, and we know that he's on a quest, and he's, he's going there in order to try to take a wife for himself. In fact, when all is done and said, what we see is, is that Jacob will get a wife, but in addition to a wife, he's going to get much more than he bargained for, and he will end up with two wives and two handmaidens. And um, one of the important things to keep in mind is uh, even though Jacob was traveling um, to somewhere, now follow me, even though Jacob was traveling to somewhere, he was also traveling away from somewhere. And if you've ever done that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, and in other words, even though Jacob had a reason for going to his mother's homeland, he also had a reason for leaving the place that he had been born and raised. And we know from the events recorded in the previous chapter that Jacob had some problems that he was trying to run away from, an angry brother who was seeking to kill him. And even though this geographical move that he was making by this journey would put some distance between the problems he was leaving behind, problems that he had created through his acts of deception. The truth of the matter is his running away didn't fix those problems. Running away doesn't fix problems. And not only did it not fix the problem, it did not make his problems go away, and eventually he would have to deal with the things that he, he had done. We'll see that. God's faithful to, to bring us back around and go, okay, now you're dealing with this. As much as we, we would like to run away or, or ignore, sweep them under the, the rug, so to speak, God wants us, to be, wants us to deal with them. 
And um, furthermore, the reason behind the problems Jacob had, um, the real reason behind the problems that Jacob had, these were problems that he could not run away from, no no matter where he went. For wherever Jacob would go, there he would be. Have you ever heard that before? You know, wherever I go, there I am. And um, wherever Jacob would go, there he would be, meaning, meaning Jacob's single greatest problem was himself. Likewise, we're, we are all, no matter what kind of a journey we're on or where we're going, spiritually or emotionally or even physically, for that matter, our biggest problem is that, is that um, we're always packing that, that biggest problem with us wherever we go, this problem of self. And even though this problem can't be run away from, the, the, what we see in, in these next chapters is, is that this problem of self is a problem that God can fix. It's a problem that God wants to work on in our lives. And just like God was doing a good work in Jacob and dealing with the problem of self that he had, God is doing a good work in us, and he's dealing with these problems of self that we have. So as we read on and learn about the things that Jacob went through and through these events and the decisions and choices that he made in light of these events, we see how God in his sovereignty, and, and I know that's, a, that's kind of a religious word, and we all often fully understand what it, what it means, but we're going to look through that this morning in light of uh, the scripture that we're in. But God in his sovereignty, what we see in this chapter, is that God in his sovereignty was growing Jacob and transforming him into uh, uh, God's character, into the character of God. So with that, I'm going to read chapter 29, and you can follow along with me, and it says in verse 1, So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east, and he looked and he saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks, and a large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks, verse 3, would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the mouth's from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, why are, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Then they said to them, Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said, And he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And he and, and look. His daughter, Rachel, is coming with the sheep. Then he said, look, it is still high day. It is, is, it, is it not time for the cattle to be gathered together? Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, verse 9, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine Jacob was probably doing that like a lot of guys would and kind of flexing his muscles at the same time. Kind of, kind of showing off there. But then in verse 11, it says, it says, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that 
he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. And then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all of these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, you are my bone and flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Let's pray. Father, I love, um, I, I just remember the words that Debbie prayed even as we were worshiping, that you are the Lord of lords, God of all creation. You're the King of kings. And God, you have a plan, the Bible tells us, that you've predestined us to be a part of your plan. While we were still in our mother's wombs, you chose us from the foundations of the earth. And God, your word tells us that in that plan and in this choosing that you have a future and a hope for us, that you're working all things together for our good. And God, even as the young man was sharing in the video this morning, um, we're reminded of the fact that this work, this plan that we're a part of and this work that you're doing in us and through us is a work that you've begun and it's a work that you will finish. You've never started anything that you've not completed and those words upon the cross where you cried out, it is finished, testifies to the fact that you were willing to do the hard thing. That you desired to do the hard thing on our behalf. And so Lord, as we read about Jacob and the hard things that he went through, and we understand, God, that we too go through hard things, Lord, help us to understand and see, God, that it's part of your plan. That you're doing a good work. And Lord, this morning as we see that May we have a willing heart and a willing spirit, God, that submits to you. And not only submits to you, but rejoices, God, in the fact that you're doing a work and you're going to complete it. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you look back to verse 1 with me as we begin to go through this, and as we begin to look at these events that we're reading about, it's important to remember from last week's journey in relationship to last week's study and is that in relationship to this journey is that is that on this journey, a significant thing happened in that Jacob had his own personal encounter with God at a, at a place called Bethel or Luz, and, and which literally, as he named it Bethel, it means the house of God, a place where Jacob had, had encountered God on his own for the very first time. And certainly Jacob had heard about God through uh, his grandfather Abraham and through his father Isaac and, and their stories and their accounts, but God was making it now personal for Jacob, that he wanted Jacob to know him and experience him in an intimate and personal way as the covenantal promises and all that God would do and say would be, had been handed down to Jacob and now would be brought forth through Jacob. And when God spoke to Jacob, he encouraged him with these promises, the same promises that had been first spoken to Abraham and then to Isaac. And through this encounter, what God was doing and speaking these promises that Jacob had heard and seen come, come to fruition, even through his, 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 his father and grandfather to some degree, is, is that with these same promises that had been spoken, God was assuring Jacob as he was on this, this journey, as he was on this quest, he was assuring him that he would find a wife and that God would be, be with him is what God said and that God would keep him wherever he was to go. And, and with these assurances, Jacob completed, which would have been a 400-mile journey from Beersheba to Haran, where, 
from where he was going to, from where he was at to where he was going. And in doing so, if, you, if you've ever looked on a map, what you would see is that Jacob would have traveled through Syria, through the city of Damascus, up and over the, the, and through the mountains of Lebanon, and then through the Syrian desert, which is modern-day Iraq. And I know some of you guys in the military, you've been there, and so you know it's hot there. And, and, and even my dad, as he served as a contractor for a, a short time, said it was the most miserable place he's been. I've not been over there, but I know that it gets hot. And, and um, actually, one guy told me the other day, he said he knows why those guys over there wear dresses. <laughs> but Jacob made this journey in Haran, which is in modern-day Mesopotamia, is, or in that Mesopotamia uh, valley and region, at that, at this time, you can, you can do some historical research and some archaeological finds have, have shown us that this, was a, this, this, this place of Haran was a heavily populated merchant city. I mean, it was because it was in the middle of a major trade route. And even though it was inland, it was built on the banks of the Balak River, which flows down into the Euphrates River, which in turn flows into the Persian Gulf. And, and I, like to, I like to bring these kinds of things to light when opportunities like this happen because I think it helps us as believers, as we read God's word, to see that these are more than just stories that have been written down years ago. That these are actual places and actual events with actual people. And, 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 and through them, God has a clear message that he's going to speak to us. And it, it helps me anyway, and maybe you too, when I find these things out and I read these things, it helps me see that I have a reasonable faith. That the word of God is accurate, 100%. Never been proven wrong by any kind of archaeological, scientific, or historic find, ever. And so as we look at this, we see that the city being built here and all the major trade routes to the water uh, sources that it had is that as we look at this, we see that Haran is where Jacob would spend the next 20 years of his life. And he would do so by working for his uncle Laban, and also by being deceived by his uncle Laban. And um, I think it's safe to say that life isn't easy, but listen to this. More often than not, life does what life does to us, as we sometimes like to say, you know, look, look, I'm, I'm a, a lot of people want to really fall into also that victim kind of mentality. And, and truly, life does happen to us to some degree. But what, what life does to us, it depends a great deal on what life finds in us. And, and I say that because it points us back to the sovereignty of God, the fact that God's in control of all things. And, and we're not just these, these, these subjects of circumstance, that, that, that God uses these things in this life that we've been given to live in order to do a work in us. And, and, and God is very pointed and directed how that works out. And I point these things out because through these events recorded in this chapter, we see two very distinct things. Distinct things that people in our world today might try to categorize as coincidental circumstances. That's one thing that people, those are just a bunch of coincidences. Um, isn't that weird? Woo, you know, um, uh, the coincidental circumstances, and, and some people would even use um, some of the, the, the Buddhist language uh, with that word karma, right? And, and as they look at certain things that take place, and they go, ooh, isn't karma great? And they usually say that when they see in somebody getting what they feel they deserve. Or when it happens to them, they, 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 you know, they kind of they curse karma. Not that I believe in karma. I don't. 
Not at all. But I'm just saying that's what, that's what some people in the world might try to categorize these events that we're reading about here in relationship to Jacob. But really what we see here is, is what is called the providence of God, which simply means this, divinely ordained, divinely ordained events and outcomes. The providence of God. Whenever you hear someone talking about the providence of God, they're speaking about God-ordained events and outcomes. And by this, we see that God was in control of all these things that were out of Jacob's control. God was in control of all of these things that were out of Jacob's control. And in addition to the providence of God, we also see the manifestation of a biblical truth which simply tells us that what a man sows, he will be sure to reap. So as we start to look at the specifics of these events, we have to conclude some things. We have to conclude that the when, the where, and the how Jacob met Rachel was not a thing of chance, not a thing of circumstance. It wasn't coincidental circumstances. And for Jacob, um, when he reached Haran, and when he, when he, um, and, and, and in having, when he reached Haran, and, and, and in having Rachel show up there at the same time that he reached this well, it was a God-ordained thing. God was in control. And if you remember, we saw the same kind, a similar kind of God-ordained thing back in Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham had sent his servant to Iran to retrieve a wife for his son Isaac. And we know that that wife was Rebekah, Jacob's mom. And in doing so, we know that the servant who also showed up at a well, um, uh, specifically a well that he showed up to also belonging to Abraham's family, his extended family, at the exact time or shortly thereafter when, when Rebekah at that time showed up there, the very woman who would become Isaac's wife, when she showed up to get water there, that, that, that too, these similar things were, were God-ordained. Furthermore, we know that that Rebecca, in that instance, in that account in Genesis chapter 24, that she even offered to water the servants, Abraham's servants, ten camels. Um, and we know that that wasn't a normal thing to do. We spoke, when I, when I taught about that, I spoke about how, you know, each camel could consume easily more than 30 gallons of water. One camel. And think about hauling 300 gallons of water. It wasn't normal for someone to do that, especially a, one, a, a lady, but yet she offered to do that. And, she, and we know that that happened because that's exactly what the, the, the servant had done before he entered into this, this situation. He prayed to God and said, hey, I don't know for sure how I'm going to fulfill Abraham's request in trying to find a wife from Abraham's family when I've never been here. I don't know who they are. I don't even know how to get a hold of them. There's not a directory or anything, right? And, and, and he prayed for God to set these kinds of things in motion, these circumstances, by which would be a confirmation or an affirmation to the servant that, that this lady, whoever she was, would be the one that God had chosen for Isaac. And, and, and when all of these things just happened to take place, as, 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 as um, the servant had requested, what we've seen in that chapter is that Abraham's servant openly and rightly declared that what had happened was a God-ordained thing. It was the providence of God. 
Now, even though there's no record of Jacob on this journey, specifically praying for God to intervene in this way, it's obvious that God did intervene. It's obvious that God was the one who was providing a wife for Jacob, and, 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 and more so that God was keeping his promises to Jacob. And both of these incidents points us to what we were talking about earlier, to the sovereignty of God, and, and, and it reveals to us how God is divinely leading those of us who are his, even still today. That's part of what God does for us. God with us doesn't mean that God, that when God sent his son Jesus Christ, that, that he, and when Christ died on the cross and ascended into heaven after he rose again, that all of a sudden we're left alone, that God's now not with us. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ said specifically that it's expedient for me to go away as he spoke to his disciples because he said, it's better for you that I go away because when I go away, then the helper will come, the Holy Spirit, God manifesting himself to us, inside of us, through the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and in that, we know that God who is with us is also guiding us and leading us. And there's many passages of scripture that identify this, like Proverbs 16, 9, which declares this by simply saying, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And I love this because especially in relationship of Jacob, we see that often we're like Jacob. And even though we have a, a quest or a journey that we're on, you know, in other words, we have a place to go. Lots of times it's because we're leaving a place. And lots of times are leaving a place or moving, whether it's in a relationship or a job or even a church, lots of times those things aren't God-ordained, or take that back, where they're, they're, that, that um, we may be working outside of God's will. And, 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 and Jacob, necessarily running from his brother, God would have had him deal with that rather than run away from the trial. And God brings these trials, these difficult things into our lives. And it's, it's, I'm always reminded of, those, of that time when Jesus was on the Sea of the Galilee with his disciples in the midst of the storm, and he, and he was sleeping, and, and they got all freaked out because they thought they were going to die as the winds and the waves were coming, and they, were, they thought they were going to sink. And, 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 and through the midst of that storm, who was in the boat with them? Jesus. He was right there. And Jesus, as much as they tried to row out of the storm, what? They couldn't, Remember? They were trapped in the middle of it. But God was with them. Christ was with them. And, and all of that to say is, is that we are often planning our ways because we're trying to get away or out of something. We want it to be comfortable. We don't want it to hurt anymore. And, and, and God is saying, sit down. Let me direct, let me direct your steps. And, and even when, when we're not in this place of perfect submission to God, where there's still some unwillingness in where we're wanting to do it our way or go in our way, what we're being told here is that God in his sovereignty is going to get us to where we need to go. And I love that. And it just reminds me of this simple truth. God is God, and I'm not. And sometimes I really don't like that because we all want to be our own Lord. We want to kind of be in control of, of things as we, we want them to see fit. But in other times, it's like, God, I'm sure glad you're driving and we just got to learn in those moments to sit back and relax and to understand that we may have plans, but the Lord directs our steps. So we can see that God had been in control of directing Jacob's feet through this whole process and leading him to that specific well at this specific time. Additionally, we can see how God had been also directing Rachel's feet as well. As it appears from this, 
this great discourse on this well that had this covering and these animals that were waiting with these shepherds. And you might be going, what, what the heck is all of that all about? Well, all of that is about God's perfect timing, God's sovereignty. That, that God's creating an ordained event. And, and, and what we're being told in that is, is what we're simply being told is that she was running late. There's a lot of jokes that could go along with that. But I'm going to refrain. But she was running late. And, and, and she was not at the well at the normal appointed time. And we find this out in verses 7 and 8 where we're told that Jacob, having seen Rachel approaching from a distance, he began to question the other shepherds who appeared to be just lingering at this well. And he asked, why were they still there when it was the normal time of day for the cattle to have been gathered and to be fed? And he said, he said to them as he, as he went on in verse 18, as they explained, he, he questioned them and challenged them and said, hey, he said, water them and, and go feed the cows. And, and obviously, you can look at Jacob. He wanted some alone time with this Rachel who was coming. It'd be good if you guys were to go. But in verse 8, they explain, and I can imagine if I was one of these shepherds who had these flocks there and I was waiting for someone else to arrive, that there might be some irritation. I already showed you, expressed my, my weakness in waiting in that earlier. But they expressed that they could not, or they said they could not water the sheep until all the flocks were gathered and it was Rachel who they had been waiting on. They're like, look, see, here she comes, Laban's daughter. That's who we're waiting on. Right? That kind of thing. And quite possible that, that, that as we see this is, is, is that we're never told the reasons why for Rachel was running late or later than usual. Or we're not given the circumstances, the coincidental circumstances, if you will, um, for why she, that she may have encountered that day that caused her to be late. And quite possible, it's quite possible that she was even frustrated by what had happened to her that day that was making her late because she knew that these other shepherds would be waiting for her. She was supposed to be there at a certain time. But even though we do not know these things, it's evident that Rachel showed up that day in accordance to God's perfect timing even though it had not been in accordance to her timing. You ever have that happen? I point this out because it's necessary for us to remember that God is sovereign. It's necessary for us to see that God is in control of all situations, even when it feels like to us that things are out of our control. And like many of you, I, I, I begin my day more times than not, I always try to begin my day by simply committing it into God's hands and asking him to direct my steps. Lord, your will be done, not mine, right? That's what we're called to pray. But then I set out with a plan because I have a list of things, right? Things on your list that, that needs to be taken care of. And, and um, Sadly, what happens is often rather than God controlling my day, my list begins to take control of my day. Because with this list, I usually have an expectation of how I think things should go. And before I know it, I'm the one that's directing my own steps. Yet in doing so, when God brings something into my day that I didn't expect, something that wasn't on my list which was not part of my plan or on my agenda, I get frustrated and I get overwhelmed by thinking, I think wrongly thinking that what has happened is bad timing. 
But if I remember that God's in control, you know, I'm filled with peace. I'm filled with peace knowing that it's God appointing these things, that God's directing my day in a way that is best for me and best for others around me, just like God was doing here for Jacob and Rachel. Perfect timing, the sovereignty of God. And so as we read on about this encounter, it says in verse 9 that while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone of the wells and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock. Now, as we continue reading on here, we see that um, even while while Jacob was speaking, that Rachel showed up. And um, Jacob didn't um, waste any time with small talk. He went right into chivalry mode. And all on his own, he rolled back the stone, and then he went to the work or to the task of, of watering of, of Rachel's sheep for her. Then according to verse 10, he kisses her. And, and before you, you, you go scandal, um, it was probably just the customary... Uh, kiss on the cheek. And then he wept. And, and that's a pretty profound thing, this, these, little, these little bits of information. And, 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 and it's in, in, in my understanding of these circumstances and what we see is, is that, that Jacob was weeping because he was overwhelmed with, with God's favor, with God's provision, with God's ordained timing. You ever been in those circumstances, in those situations where nothing goes the way that you hoped or planned, yet but everything works out perfectly? And all you can do because of the circumstances is stand back and go, that's God. And he did that for me. And, 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 And this is what's going on. And he wept with apparent joy and relief as he explained um, how they were related to her. And when Laban, her her father heard the news that Rachel brought him. We know that he too was excited. He too was glad to hear about Jacob's arrival. But I don't think it was for the same reasons that Jacob was, was, was excited. Because knowing what type of man Laban was, I suspect that his excitement um, was rooted in the fact that when Abraham's servant had previously come to take Rebekah, his sister, to be Isaac's wife, well, he knows that Laban had been given... Um, a great wealth of gifts. And now that Jacob had come on the scene all these years later, I think the idea, well, it's clear, it's not think, it's, it's clear that the idea of profiting from his visit was on the front of his mind. So Jacob was embraced and he was kissed by Laban and after, and after Jacob in verse 13 spoke to Laban and explained, it says, all these things. He concluded in verse 14, if you'll look here, this is a pretty, this is a pretty well, anyway, it's, it's ironic and even, even somewhat paradoxical but because it's more than just the, 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 the familial relation that we're looking at here. He, he declared, in, after he explained all things, he declared that Jacob and he were alike, saying, surely you are bone, my bone, and my flesh. And um, I find this very humorous because at this point, I'm sure neither of these men realized just how much alike they really were. Considering both of them were deceitful men who were willing to do just about anything to get their own way. And it's hard to say after their time together that we'll read about in the next few chapters, it's hard to say over the next 20 years who really gets the best of who. 
and all of their, 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 their deceitful acts against one another. But as we remember that Jacob, as, as, but as we remember in light of all of this, that Jacob is in the refining process where God is working on him and, and changing him from, as we looked about last week, from the deceiver into the, a, a, a man who is known as the prince of God or given the name uh, Israel, which literally means the prince of God. Um, when we remember all of that, we, we see that the type of person that God used, okay, we see that the type of person that God used, meaning Laban, to refine Jacob, when we see that taking place, it gives us in some insight into how and what type of person God will use in our own lives to refine us. Now, I suspect that you've heard it said this, a liar cannot stand another liar. Yeah. And the same thing's true with a thief. A thief despises nothing more than, than someone else who's a thief. Steal from a thief kind of a thing. And the point is, is the very thing that so quickly irritates and deeply offends us is often some of the same kind of things that are in us. The very things that quickly irritate us and deeply offend us are often some of the very same kinds of things that are in us. And yet God allows for these kinds of people that have these same kinds of things in them that are in us to come into our lives in order to refine us. Remember Proverbs chapter 27 verse 17 reminds us of this by simply saying, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And there's this idea of this abrasive action that takes place from others around us that God uses in the refining process. And so those, there are those people around us, have you ever said, you know, that, that person, I like that person, but they just rub me the wrong way. And, and you gotta, you got almost you got almost preface that I like that person before you say that when really you don't like them. <laughs> they rub me the wrong way. And there are. There are people who simply rub us, rub us the wrong way. But if we're honest, we might find out that they rub us the wrong way because we're like them in ways that are not pleasant or appealing to us. And more than likely, God is using them in our lives in that moment, in that time, in those ways to knock off those rough edges in order to refine us and change us into his likeness. Because there's a mirroring effect that takes place. And, 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 and God reveals that to you. And you may be, have one of those aha God moments where you may be telling somebody about so-and-so and how they rub you the wrong way and you can't stand this and that about them and, and, and God God does the Nathan and David thing, and he whispers in your ear, and he says, you're that man. That's you. And you're like, and, and, and you realize that because maybe the day before or, or a couple days before that, you had just done that same thing to somebody else, and you, you thought maybe it was okay or justified because we're often working in this place of self-deception, as we've been talking about even in the book of James, and God like turns on the light in your mind, and you go, oh, that's me. I'm like that. And so as we see that, and as God does that, I think we should, be, um, we should not be so quick to run or avoid those who rub us the wrong way. Matter of fact, you probably need to, over, you probably need to invite them over for lunch today before you go to the bridge. So if you get invited, maybe they're telling you something. Just kidding. 
But no, I mean, seriously, we, don't, we, 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 want, we live in this place as human beings, especially in America, where we seek comfort. We want comfort in everything. We work hard for comfort. But being in a place of spiritual comfort isn't always a healthy thing. God wants us to be uncomfortable at times and reliant upon him. And in those places is when people are rubbing us the wrong way. I don't think we should be so quick to avoid them or run for them. Rather, we should just simply trust in God that he's using them as an instrument to refine us as we're being conformed and confronted, confronted rather by the unpleasant things and conformed into his image. As God roots out those things that are in our hearts and in our lives that are unpleasant and unappealing. So in verse 15, we read on. It says, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters, and the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give, you, give, her, to you the, give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only to be a few days. And because of the love he had for her, and because of the love that he had for her, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. So, if you look back at verse 14, at the end of it, we see there the transition, and we're told that after being with his relatives and working alongside them for a month, there's a month that's taken place between verses 14 and 15, we see that verse in verse 15, Laban looked to put a plan into motion in order to deceive and take advantage of Jacob. And he did so by offering to pay Jacob a wage for the work that he had been doing. And it's almost like this, hey, after all, Jacob, shouldn't I pay you? We're family. We're family. Why should you serve me for nothing? And up to this point, it appears that, that Jacob had not even thought about a wage since he was simply content to be with Rachel, the woman he was in love with. So as Jacob looked at this offer and was asked to name his own wage, he saw it as an opportunity to advance his own desires. And, and, and get Rachel for himself. But he didn't realize that, that Laban, even up to this point, he didn't realize that Laban was this master schemer who would end up controlling his life, literally controlling his life for the next 20 years. So in the excitement of that moment's decision, which involved accepting a job, which is a good thing, and being engaged to a beautiful woman, which is also another good thing. In the midst of that emotion, Jacob failed to notice that Laban made no promise by his words in verse 19, no promise to give Rachel to Jacob at the end of the seven years. He just declared the truth. Yeah, it would be better for me to give her to you than some other man. <laughs> and he only agreed to give in that, Rachel for his wife, not when. So when the end of the seven years came, it was time for Jacob to receive his wage. What we're going to see is that, as we read on, is that, that Jacob or Laban pulls this ultimate switcheroo, right? And instead of giving Rachel, he gives his oldest daughter Leah and, 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 and excuse this obvious deception with the fact that she's the oldest. She needed to be married first. But the thing for us to notice more so in the context of what we're reading and where we're going, is that 
through this process that's been taking place and the things that God has done in revealing himself to Jacob and, and, and promising to Jacob and bringing him there and, and letting Jacob see some God-ordained things in his own sovereignty and God's sovereignty come to pass as we begin to see this growth taking place in Jacob's character, in, including working for these seven years, you know, and laboring and, and as and we see Jacob's character changing and, and growth in that as he served Laban for these seven years, which had to have been difficult. And, and then agreeing to do another seven years, which we'll read about, even after he had been tricked. And even though I've never been a shepherd of any type of animal, I suspect that shepherding is very difficult work. You've got to sleep out in the fields with the animals. They have to be fed. They have to be protected. And, and, and even more so, I think it was... Initially, initially, difficult for a man like Jacob who had been accustomed to a softer way of life when he was living back in the land of Canaan. Remember, he's described, in contrast to his brother, as one who dwelt in the tents with his mom. His brother was the one that was out in the fields. And so this was something that was completely foreign to him, something that he wasn't accustomed to. Yet we see that it was his love for Rachel that took, he literally said, it took the burden out of the work. As verse 20 tells us that his love for Rachel made it seem like those seven years had been just a few days. And I've heard many people say that this is one of those romantic verses in the Bible. And I've also heard it said that happiness consists of this. Happiness consists of having someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. And Jacob had all three. And the point is, is even though Jacob was not pleased about being tricked, he was willing to work these additional seven years that he'll be asked to do for Rachel because he was looking forward to having Rachel as his bride and to the joy that he knew that would bring him. And in light of this love story, guys, especially in, in light of taking communion this morning, it only seems right to mention that this kind of love that Jacob demonstrated by his willingness to do the hard thing while being treated unjustly because he was looking forward to having Rachel as his bride, it's a picture. It's an awesome and wonderful picture of the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated in order to purchase us as his bride. In that Jesus, we're told, willingly suffered and, and, and he looked beyond the suffering. He endured the suffering to the joy that was set before him, the joy of having us as his bride. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse, or 12, verse 2, it says this. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And seeing and understanding what kind, uh, understanding what this kind of sacrificial love is like and what this kind of sacrificial love is willing to do and how this kind of sacrificial love is to be done, it's important to see this. And for those of us who are husbands, we need to remember that there's this expectation from God. There's, there, there's a command given to us in, in order to demonstrate to our wives this same kind of sacrificial and unconditional love. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. But as we look at the greater picture of this by Jesus' example and Jacob's example, we see that this sacrificial love is more than just laying down our, 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 our lives for our wives. 
it's not, it's, Jacob could have come to the, to the end of the seven years and, it's like, and, and not declared that it had seemed like just a few days. He could have gone, man, that was a lot of hard work, woman. Let me tell you what I had to do for you. But guys, sometimes that's our attitude. Woman, it is hard to love you. And she's going, tell me about it. That's hard to love you too. But what the, the idea here behind Ephesians chapter 5 is we do it as Christ had done is, is that we see that through Jesus' example and with, Jesus, with Jacob's example, we see that this kind of love, this sacrificial love that we're called to love our spouses with, it's not a, it's not a burdensome thing. Rather, we see that it's, it's, it's with this willingness to joyfully do the hard thing for the woman that God has entrusted to us. And you know what? And that is romantic. And we learn of that romance first because of what Christ did on the cross. Because the Bible says that yet while we were still in the midst of our sins, Christ died us. Think back to that. If you look back at your own life, go, this is when I was the most unlovable. When I was doing this, God, his son Jesus, willfully and joyfully said, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to do the hard, sacrificial, unpleasant thing. You know what? And the truth is, is that's when I feel most, my wife has lots of opportunities for this, but this is when I feel the most loved by my wife is when she loves me, even when I'm being unlovable. When it's hard. When she does it with joy. And guys, that's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to love one another. So as we close, we read verse 22, and it says, And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening they took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zifla, Zippah, excuse me, Zilpha, to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. I would have said, you've had seven years to get rid of her. Get rid of her, you know. Anyway, fulfill her week, and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week, so he gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. And Jacob also went into Rachel, and he also loved Rachel much or, or more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. All right, I'm going to try to bring this to a quick close, but if you're, if you're like me, you might be wondering, first of all, I go, there's a lot of unanswered questions in the Bible. Um, they, the Bible, when you read it, it probably poses more questions in certain ways than it does unanswer or answering them, but, but only in non-real important ways. And so in an unimportant kind of way, just kind of putting it out there, if you like me, you might be wondering, how the heck was Jacob unaware of the fact that he'd gotten Leah instead of Rachel, right? And even though there's no biblical explanation found for how this might have happened, there are many scholarly opinions out there, and we all know what an opinion's like, but some suggest that um, Jacob had too much wine, perhaps, at the wedding feast. I don't know, maybe. Others say that it was because Leah was veiled and her identity was concealed. And, and we know that there are some cultural things to that, quite possibly. But even some suggest, and Rich and I were kind of even chatting about this this morning, some of the earlier Jewish rabbis even suggest that Leah and Rachel may have even been twins. 
and that they were similar in appearance. And it wasn't until that next morning when the sun was shining that he understood and realized that he had been deceived. But in, in, in doing so, in being deceived, listen, the man who had deceived his father, Jacob, had been deceived by his father-in-law. That's what we see going on, right? The man who had deceived his father had now been deceived by his father-in-law. And the man who passed himself off as the firstborn had received Laban's firstborn daughter to be his wife. It's all coincidence. In the light of this, I wonder if, if Laban's excuse for tricking Jacob in verse 26 about the custom of, of the firstborn being married had opened Jacob's eyes in any kind of way and caused him to consider what he had done to his brother Esau. And I think so. I think it was one of those aha moments where God goes, look in the mirror, Jacob. Look in the mirror. Debbie, if you want to come back up and Rich, we're going to close with this. And, and, and nevertheless, what we need to see is that through Jacob's deception, we see that Jacob was really getting a taste of his own medicine, right? I mean, that's what was really going on. And in this, there's an inescapable law, which I kind of mentioned at the beginning of our study, an inescapable law of life being exampled that, that says we eventually reap what we sow. And in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, it says this. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So in closing, I want to point out that these painful consequences, guys, is the result of a loving God. And what I mean by that is, is, is these painful consequences that we often encounter in our own life is exactly what God allows in order to grow us, in order that we would turn away from ungodly things and ungodly ways and in turn, turn to God who is gracious and God who in his grace is faithful to forgive us of our sins any and every time we confess them. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, that you're gracious and merciful. Lord, that you let us come to the end of ourselves and you ordain things so that we can get to the end of ourselves so that we can turn to you and allow you to be everything. I pray, Father, that through this study and through these um, things that we looked at and through your Holy Spirit teaching us this morning, God, that we would see these in our own lives and, God, that we would allow you to make the changes in us. Father, give us hope and encouragement and, and, and let us rejoice, Father, in the fact that you're sovereign and that you ordain things and you're in control even when everything seems to be out of our control. Father, help us to rest in you knowing those truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you guys stand and we'll sing a last song. Over.